All right. Well, good morning, Be Free. Welcome. All right. My name's Ben. I'm the pastor here. We are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. That's who we are. That's what we do. Um, and that is how we seek to do it. Welcome to everybody um, from the Conference Center who's here with us today. We know that before Memorial Day and after Labor Day, we get a little rush of you guys. We like having you. It's a, it's a joy to, to worship with you. Uh, but we are together to worship the one true God. So no matter where you call home, if you're here with us, that's who we're worshiping. So thank you for doing that with us. Um, before we get started today, I have another thing I want to share with you. Um, today we are in Acts chapter 10. Go ahead and open up your Bibles there, if you have your Bibles with you. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 10 this week. We're going to be in chapter 11 next week. And then after that, we're going to be taking a 10-week break from the book of Acts. Uh, really, through the summer, we're going to be taking that that break, and rather than looking at Acts, we're going to be looking at the book of Esther for the entire story, for the entire, pretty much the entire summer. And so what we're doing is what we've done many times before, is we've provided these, these scripture journals. Now, all these are is the text of scripture. Um, we have one really pretty one and one plain one. You can go with your style, whatever you're into. But we've got about 50 of them over here, and we have a little box over there that says suggested donation $3. Um, I want to say, if you felt, feel led to make a donation to help cover the cost of their journals, great. If you don't, fine. Take it. It doesn't really matter to us if you help cover those costs. What matters to us is that if you're going to track with us through this book of Esther, grab one of these journals, mark them up, highlight it, make it a mess. You can do that because we're going to be um, through this for the entire summer, hopefully really allowing God to show us what it looks like for him to work in the world, even when we can't clearly see it. And that's a little teaser of where we're going uh, in the book of Esther. Uh, but we are going to do something new for Esther this summer uh, that I want to encourage you to do. Um, in each one of these little scripture journals, tucked into it is a little sheet of paper. Uh, on it, what it says at the top is getting the most out of Esther. And what we want to encourage you to do is at some point over the next two weeks, take the time to read the book of Esther. It's not long. Actually, in here, there's only about 10 pages of text. <laughs> it's a pretty short book. But what's amazing is that when you read through the book of Esther, when you, when you really prime your heart to walk through this book together for us by reading it, God will show you so much more than if you just get it firsthand from me only without having you know, prepared your heart for it on your, on your own. So on this little sheet of paper, we got three things. Number one, we have an encouragement for you to read through the book of Esther, some ideas of how you might do it in a uniquely sweet way. Read it um, with a group of other people, maybe with your family. Try considering uh, divvying out the different roles of the book and reading it like a play together. Read it out loud to yourself. Read it in one sitting. The second thing we see on here is the three major th themes of the book of Esther. And I want to encourage you, as you read through the book of Esther, be looking for these three major themes. The providence of God, the responsibility of man, and the foolishness of wickedness. So work through the book of Esther with these, this piece of paper in front of you. Allow it to prime your heart for this book. And then finally, at the end, a little encouragement to keep track of your questions. Because when we go through the Bible, we will always come across passages that confuse us or maybe frustrate us or just seem to go completely over our heads. But we're going to go through this book together this summer. Keep track of your questions. Keep track of the things that confuse you. Keep track of the things that intrigue you. And as we go, I hope that together we can help this book come to life. 
So please, before you leave today, grab one of those journals. If you feel led, uh, make a, a donation to help cover that cost or not. And then uh, in the next few weeks, uh, read the book of Esther on your own. I'm excited to do this together with you guys. All right. We are in the book of Acts, chapter 10. The entire chapter today. It's a lot. You know, when I was growing up, I went to a church in West Houston, uh, and when we walked into the lobby of this, uh, uh, of this church, um, along the ceiling, hanging from the ceiling, uh, were all the flags of the world uh, lined up, hanging from the ceiling. And then I went to college, I went to Moody Bible Institute, and every year we had a missions conference, and the opening night of missions conference, uh, all the different students that represented all the different nations came parading in, holding the flags of their native country. And then I went to seminary, and at seminary every year we had this missions emphasis week, and they decorated the great hall of the school with all the flags of the nations of the world. So my question for you is, what is the deal with Christians and flags? Why do we decorate our churches with flags? Why do we have ceremonies where we celebrate the different flags? What's the deal with that? Is that a part of our faith? Or are they just colorful? (laughs) There's a reason why Christians have flags in their buildings and Muslims don't have flags in their mosques. Uh, Hindus, Buddhists don't have flags in their temples. And definitely Jews don't have flags in their synagogues. The reason is Christianity is a uniquely multi-ethnic religion. And when I say uniquely multi-ethnic, I mean in comparison to the other countries, or sorry, the other religions of the world. Christianity is a faith for all people in all places. Now, this is a quote from a man named Stephen Lloyd. Let me read this to you. He says this, Christianity is, and from its very inception has been, a cross-cultural and diverse religion with no single dominant expression. Throughout history, all Christians have lived in specific cultural contexts. It is in, Christ, it is, uh, in Christians of many and various responses that Christianity gains its unique multicultural and polyvocal texture as a world religion. Now, this hasn't always been true, right? Uh, Missionaries throughout the ages have sometimes made the error of bringing Christianity, leading people to follow the one true God, and simultaneously importing a certain culture for them to follow. But that is not the way it's supposed to be. Christianity is, or rather, Christianity does not ask its adherents to change their dress, their language, or their food. Christianity, it does not ask its adherents to separate themselves from the cultural and cultural heritage. Rather, Christianity allows believers of every ethnic and cultural background to worship Jesus with their own unique cultural expression. Let me say it like this. Christians encourage everyone to worship God and dress their worship in their own clothes. That's how Christianity works. It is not changing culture. It fits into the different cultures of our world. And when I said before that this is radical, it truly is radical. Just think about Islam. Islam requires every adherent around the world to make a pilgrimage to a specific geographical place, to worship a box that is in a specific, sorry, that's not fair to their doctrine, but to worship in a specific cultural place. Also, according to official Muslim doctrine, if you are not reading the Quran in Arabic, you're not actually receiving the true words from God. And this is actually true of Buddhism and Hinduism as well. It's radically different than Christianity. That even when you witness worship of a Buddhist or a, or a Hindu here in America, it still bears a uniquely Eastern flavor. It doesn't change to fit the cultures. It contains its own Eastern culture. 
And that is also radically true for Jews as well. Because Judaism, as we know, is not just a religious system. It is also an ethnic identity. There is no flags decorating synagogues. Because God chose them, right? God chose that people, the descendants of Abraham, telling them that they were the chosen people. He said to them through Moses, Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, he says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the nations of the Egyptians. They were chosen. The nations were not. That was clear in the Old Testament. And then God gave them these laws. And we're going to be thinking a lot about these laws today because these laws were given to the people of Israel so that they could live in such a way that they, though a sinful and broken people, as we all are, would, able, would be able to have a relationship with a holy, eternal God. They followed these laws, in other words, so that they could have relationship with God. And so they had these ceremonial, ceremonial laws for relationships so that they could be clean and worship their God. And the nations, therefore, they were not clean. The nations could not have relationship with the one true God, Yahweh, that they worshiped. Now in Acts chapter 10, we're coming to a passage where the Jews, or the, the Christians rather, are still a community of predominantly of, of Jews. This is still a Jewish movement. But something's going to happen in this passage that will absolutely explode the categories of this young church, upend their traditions, and show them that Jesus meant what he said when he said that this gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. So let's pause now and pray and dive into this long yet beautiful passage. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, this entire passage from beginning to end is a testimony of your grace. That you don't give us what we deserve. You don't give us what we've earned by our sin. Rather, God, you give us a love, a favor, a forgiveness that is entirely something that we could not merit, but is given purely by your grace, your mercy. God, that was true of these people here in this passage. That was true of the Jews back in the book of Genesis. That was true. That is true still of us today, Father. It is purely because of you, your grace, your mercy, your love, that we have your favor, that we are accepted by you. And so, Father, we pray that as we get into this passage today, that it would come to life to us, Father, that you would speak to us through it, that we would not leave the same people we were when we came, that we would be, as we try to say from time to time, re-enchanted by the gospel today. Strike us afresh. Do what you will. Don't let us leave the same. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, because this is a long passage, here's what we're going to do. We're going to break it up into three acts. Three acts of one long passage. Let's start with Act 1, starting in verse 1. Join me there. The scene opens in a town called Caesarea, about 30 miles north of where we left Peter last week in Joppa. And we read this. At Caesarea, there was a man named... Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continuously to God. About the ninth hour of the day, that's about 3 o'clock p.m., he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God came in and said to him, Cornelius, 
And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa to bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, just to make things complicated, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among whom, oh, sorry, among whom, uh, who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay. So we meet this man, Cornelius. We know quite a bit about him. What do we know? We know he's a centurion. That means that he is a leader of a hundred men in the Roman military. Not just that, he's a centurion who is a part of the Italian cohort. The Italian cohort was a group of 600 men led by six centurions. In other words, he was a powerful man over a powerful group of people. What else do we know about Cornelius? Well, we also know that he was pretty well-to-do. A centurion in this day would have been paid up to five times the amount of an ordinary soldier. Not just that, but we see that in this passage, he has servants on hand that he can just send to do his will. This guy is powerful, he is successful, and he is quite well off. He's living in, uh, in uh, Caesarea. We can put the map up here on the screen. That's 30 miles north of where we left Peter last week in Joppa. But the thing that's most important for us to see about this man, Cornelius, is that he was a God-fearer. It says, a, de- a devout man who feared God. Now, that language of God-fearer, we talked about a couple weeks ago when we met the Ethiopian eunuch, right? A God-fearer is a Gentile who worships Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the people of Israel, but who didn't convert fully to Judaism. But what we know about this man, Cornelius, is that even though he did not ever become a Jew, he is a man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continuously to God. So think about this. He worships the one true God, is not able to go into the temple to make worship to God, to make offerings to God, but continues to serve God with his whole heart. And what's amazing about this passage is that God notices. God sees this about this man. Look what the angel that's sent to him says to him. He says, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now what the heck does that mean? Ascended as a memorial before God. Though it's strange language to us, it's not the only time we hear that word in the Bible. Go back to the Old Testament. We'll put Leviticus chapter 2, verse 2 up here on the screen. This is what it says when it's talking about grain offerings of the people of Israel. It says that the priest shall burn this, this grain offering, as a memorial portion on the altar. That's the same idea. It's the same word. It continues. A food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. These offerings of the Jews were called memorial portions. They were pleasing aroma to the Lord. Which, what that means is that when they offered God in this way, God noticed. He received this praise and he was delighted by this praise. Now let's connect this back to Cornelius. What, is, what, what does this mean? It means that even though Cornelius was not allowed into the temple to be a part of the offerings, even though he was kept out from the worship of God. His prayers and his godly living, this, the, the, the alms and, the, and the, uh, the, the fearing of the Lord, that was an offering unto the Lord. God saw his life and received it as worship. God noticed, he received it, he delighted in Cornelius's obedience. 
And so the angel tells him to send men to Joppa and to bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He calls three men. He sends them to Joppa, tells them what happens. End scene one. All right. Now, when I read this passage, for me, I'm not scandalized by this. I hear this passage and I think to myself, yeah, that, that sounds about right. What we see here is a Gentile who, whose life of worship before God pleases the Lord. It's, it's, uh, it's a picture of a man whose obedience is an act of worship. That doesn't scandalize me because that's what I try to do. That's what we all try to do. We all try to live in such a way that our lives, our obedience, our prayers, our, our good deeds, all this delights the heart of God. Duh. That's not how a Jew would have read this. A Jew would have read this and thought to himself, wait a second, here is a man who is ceremoniously impure. This is a man who eats bacon for breakfast, who is uncircumcised. This is a Gentile. This is not a man who can just make an offering to God. I can't even make an offering to God if I don't go clean myself. And so this is confusing for a Jewish person who, were, who would be reading this passage. Act 1 would have left them scratching their heads. So what is going on? How is it that the entire law of the Old Testament is just being ignored, it seems, by God in these first eight verses. Let's see Act 2. Join me in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey, that's the, the, the servants sent to Joppa, and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That's about noon. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and, and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice uh, came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. Now, this happened three times. It seems Peter needs to be told three times everything. <laughs> and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision uh, that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry at Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out and asked uh, whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one that you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Here in scene two, we see Peter right where we left him, right? We left him in Joppa last week, and he is still there. He is up on the roof of this house when he sees what? Pigs in a blanket. A sheet coming down from heaven with all kinds of animals. And when it says all kinds of animals, it means clean animals and unclean animals. Animals that Jews would eat and animals that Jews wouldn't eat. You can go back to the Old Testament. I think, it's, uh, I think it's Leviticus 11. It's got this long list of animals that are not clean for the Jews to eat. When it says all kinds, it means those included. Pigs, for instance. 
And so the voice says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Eat this food that the Old Testament told you you shouldn't eat. And Peter says, by no means. I'm a good Jewish boy. I've got a good track record. I've never eaten this food uh, before. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. But the voice says to him, what God has made clean, do not call common. It happens three times. What God has called clean, do not call common. What God has called clean, do not call common. And this whole sheet was taken back up into heaven. Now, it says here that Peter was inwardly perplexed. I love that language. It's probably a crazy understatement because he had to be scratching his head. What is going on here? A voice is telling me to do what I know God told me not to do. And I want to say to us Christians, you should be worried when a voice tells you to do something that is different from what God tells you to do. If you think God is telling you to do something, but it's contrary to what his word says, what this book says, it's probably not God. The reason that Peter is perplexed in this passage is because God is actually telling him to do something that seems to contradict what the Old Testament says. He should be worried. He should be confused. But while Peter is pondering this vision of unclean food, what happens? Some unclean people come. And that connection is important. We'll get to that in a minute. Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. What does it say? For I have sent them. (laughs) Accompany them without hesitation because I, God, said so. End scene two. Peter was inwardly perplexed, and of course he was. He should be. This is hardly clear. I mean, sometimes I wish God would speak to us and direct us a little more clearly than he does. Peter was wishing that here. God, if you have something to tell me, why why don't you just make it more plain? Pigs in a blanket is not the easiest way to tell me what you're doing here. He doesn't fully understand what's happening, so for that we have to go to Act 3. Join me in the second half of verse 23. The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea, this town 30 miles to the north on the sea. And Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and his close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And he talked with him, and he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when it was, I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then why you sent for me. Now let's, let's pause here for just, just a minute. I want to picture this scene. This is an awkward scene because Peter doesn't just come on his own to meet Cornelius. This isn't a coffee date. Peter comes with his posse and Cornelius has gathered his posse. This is two groups of two different nations, two groups that don't intermix together in a room, none of them having the full story of what's going on here. Cornelius knows about his vision and what was going on there. Paul knows about his vision, doesn't have a full, clear answer. Cornelius is so confused that he worships Paul, but then Paul speaks. Sorry, Peter. Peter speaks. And what Peter says is three things. Number one, he acknowledges how awkward this is, basically. Because you you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. In other words, let's just lay it on the table. 
This isn't normal. Okay, now since we're past that, he continues to say this. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, hold up. Is that what God said? God never said anything about people. God never said anything on the, on the rooftop about calling any person common or unclean. Actually, what God was talking about was food. But Peter's piecing this together. Peter is piecing together what God is showing them uh, through everything that's going on here. That this doesn't just apply to unclean food. This actually applies to all the purity laws of the Old Testament. That he, as a Jew, has been required to live out his entire life, but he wants to know the rest of the story, what's going on here, so we continue. He asks, I ask you why you sent for me. In verse 30, Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, an angel, and said, Cornelius, your prayers have, uh, have sorry, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter, who is lodging at the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. We've seen all this before. So I sent for you, and at once you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in, your presence of, in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. In other words, Peter, I know you have a message. Give it to me. And Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, emphasis on all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, this story had spread how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all who, oppressed, who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses to, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us, this is important, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What's the result of this sermon? Verse 44, I'll read to the end. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the, circumcised, uh, 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 from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. And they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water of bap for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. That's a lot. This is a long passage. The thing is, though it's long, and though there is a lot that we can see here, uh, the, the message of this passage is not as complex 
as maybe the list of questions that you have coming to the end of this passage. In fact, uh, the next week's passage, I just want to say, next week's passage is going to allow us to come back to some of the themes that we've seen in this passage here. But what we need to see here is that Peter understands what's going on, and he makes it plain. He says, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Acceptable to God. Jew or Gentile, clean or unclean, acceptable to God. How? Well, he bears witness to that with the story of Jesus Christ. Witness to his life and ministry. Witness to his death. Bears witness to his resurrection. Bears witness to his current rule and reign. And bears witness in verse 43 to the fact that everyone, not just Jews, not just Gentiles, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Left pure, left undefiled, left able to worship the one true God. Peter preaches this gospel, and what do we see? We see a second Pentecost. We see Acts chapter 2, in other words, repeated. When the Holy Spirit comes upon the Jews, here we see the Holy Spirit come upon the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit falls, they speak in tongues, they worship God, they are baptized into Jesus' name, and what happens next? Peter stays with them. Why? Because they're all the same now. In the eyes of God, they are all the same pure, clean, undefiled, one body. More on that next week. But what do we see here? Three acts. Act one, God accepts the worship of the unclean Gentile. Act two, what God has made clean, the Jews must not call common or unclean. Then act three, God's spirit comes to dwell in those people who have been made clean by faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see what that means? There is no longer any need for the Jews to follow these ritual purity laws in order to worship the one true God. No longer are Gentiles unclean, unable to offer worship to the one true God. No longer do the Jews need to keep their distance from Gentiles because by faith in Jesus Christ, all people, Jew and Gentile, are forgiven of their sins, made acceptable to him. Let me summarize this from something Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 12. He says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Man, we could go for hours looking at passages in the New Testament that get this message across. The dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. The two people have been made one flesh. Jew and Gentile. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile. One church family. Now I do want to say the Bible is also seems to indicate clearly, Romans chapter 11, that God still cares about the Jewish nation. Do I know how that all works together? I got ideas. A lot of people have ideas. But it's not clear. What we know is that the church is Jew and Gentile. One body in Christ. Now, if I were to hazard a guess today, I think that very few of us have a drop of Jewish blood in this room. Um, To my knowledge, I don't have a, a single drop of Jewish blood in my body, yet here we are. We're praising Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Jewish people. I would also be willing to hazard a guess that very few of us sacrificed a pigeon this morning before coming to worship. 
If you did, you can see me afterwards. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> the holy God of the universe formerly required the people of Israel to make these sacrifices, to, to wash themselves, to make themselves ritually pure so that they could walk confidently into the temple to worship their God. But now we are allowed to praise him confidently, not because we have cleansed ourselves, but because we have been cleansed by Jesus Christ. We are able to confidently walk into the throne room of God, not as unclean outsiders, but as sons and daughters of the king. Sinners made saints, outsiders brought in, the defiled made pure, strangers made heirs, corrupted made clean, enemies made friends, all by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is ours, by faith in what he has done, not in what we have done. But today, I want to finish today by sticking for a moment on this idea of cleanliness and, and purity because I think about Cornelius and the fact that he is able to worship the one true God. I, I read that and I think to myself, well, great, but he was a pretty good dude. I mean, Cornelius' worst sin was eating bacon. Cornelius isn't a guy who's got a wrong, long rap sheet. He's not... He's a guy who, who, who gives alms, who, who prays earnestly, who has loved and feared the Lord, it seems, for, for a while. And you might want to say, Ben, like, I know Jesus makes the defiled pure and he makes the corrupted clean, but I think I'm a little bit beyond that. I think I'm a little bit too far gone. But if that's you, I want to beg you, brother, do not believe it for a second. If you think that you've done too much to deserve the love of God, I have good news for you. You're right. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't give his love to people who deserve it. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 5. He says, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Our guilt, our shame, our sin, it's not what disqualifies us from the love of God. Rather, our sin, guilt, and shame is what qualifies us for the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. Jesus cries out, come to me all who are strong and pretty put together. That's not what he says. Jesus cries out to the crowds, come to me all who, are la who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest, Matthew chapter 11. Jesus does not offer a caffeine shot to those who just need a little extra boost. He offers life to the dead. That's who Jesus came to die for. And if you're not a believer today, if you've never put your faith in Christ, rather than going into a full gospel presentation, I want to invite you to talk to me after the service today. The answer is Jesus Christ. He loves you exactly the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. He died on the cross to give you the purity you could never earn yourself. Here I am going into a full gospel presentation. <laughs> Stop me. Yeah. He did that because he wants relationship with you. Not because you earned it. You've done nothing to deserve it. He did it because he decided in his own eternal sovereignty to love you with an eternal love. And I don't think that... Uh, <laughs> this is something that Christians need to know as well because I think that many of us deep down still think that Jesus is up there shaking his head every time we step out of line. 
<laughs> like, like Jesus is, is sitting on his, his throne thinking, gosh, why did I choose them? <laughs> I mean, this other person's way better. I could have gone for them instead. But if that's you, I want you to hear something that was so encouraging to me uh, from a book called Gentle and Lowly by Dana Ortland. Um, and this is what he writes. Uh, he says this, where he asks this question. Uh, is it not presumptuous audacity? Here it is on the screen. Is it not presumptuous audacity to draw on the mercy of Christ in an unfiltered way? Shouldn't we be measured and reasonable, careful not to pull too much on him? He answers that question with another question. He says, would a father with a suffocating child want his child to draw on an oxygen tank in a measured and reasonable way? He does not get flustered or frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon, with uh, distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. Christ's heart is not drained by our coming to him. His heart is filled up all the more by our coming to him. Guys, that is hard to believe when it feels like you have spit in his eye again and again and again. But that is the love of a father. That is the love of a mother. That is the love that our God has for his children. Jesus Christ did not come for Jews only or Gentiles only. Jesus did not come for the strong, the moral, and the put together. Jesus Christ came for one kind of person and one kind of person only. And Paul said it clearly in 1 Timothy 1, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, no matter your past, no matter what you've done, run to him. Fall into his arms. He is longing to give you his grace. And if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, no matter the sin you continue returning to, run back to him again and again and again. And when you get there, he will not be met by a God who is scolding you for your sin. You will be met with a Jesus, with a smile on his face, a tear in his eye, saying, it is the desire of my heart to forgive and to love. That's our Savior. That's our God. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is impossible to believe. I, f- I find myself for forgetting it, doubting it, denying it in my heart every time I sin. That you must be so frustrated with me. You must be just done with me because I have sinned against you a million times, an uncountable number of times. But Father, that's not the kind of father you are. You're not the kind of father whose love runs dry at a certain point. Your love, your forgiveness, your mercy, your grace, God, it is bottomless. And Lord, though this is a message that we talk about literally every single week that we come together, it is a message that will never get old, that must never grow tired for us, Lord. We pray, God, that you would, again, re-enchant us to this gospel message, to the fact that though we were not your chosen people, you made us your chosen people by sending your son to die for us. So Father, we come to you confident that not only do you hear us, but you forgive us and you will lavish once again the love on us that you did at the beginning. Father, thank you for this undeserved, glorious love. We worship you, Lord, now because you deserve it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.